Hello, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Although long time no see, you've been away. I know, I know. Basically, I want to apologise in advance. Um, Anything that I say in this introduction is uh, in a jet-lagged state, a severely jet-lagged state. (laughs) And I'm not not necessarily responsible for what I say. I got back uh, back on Sunday evening uh, and we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Well, then you've had ages then. I've got no excuse, (laughs) but I I mean, I have no idea what time's it. (laughs) I mean, my body has no clue. And uh, yeah... But uh, usually around this time, I start to perk up a bit. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully it'll be all right. Okay. But um, yeah, apologies for any rambling and vagueness. Well, yeah, similarly, because, you know, I've just come back from Scotland. Um, ah, yes. From which I had two very normal journeys with nothing to comment on. Um, <laughs> nothing out of the ordinary happened on either so you, uh, the way up or the way back. So um, the sleeper train wasn't a part of your itinerary? It was, and it was uh, lovely, it was, yes. and it okay, was good. absolutely fine. Okay, uh, in good. fact, I've discovered that the sleeper guard has been trolling me. He's been trolling you? Because Does I... Does he listen to the podcast? Well, no, I, <laughs> I don't think so. Because <laughs> I asked my father whether... I said, you know, he had a go at me for not taking my breakfast in the dining car, and my dad swears blind that he never does. <laughs> so anyway, um, no, but nothing oh, out of the ordinary happened on either of those journeys. I'm a normal human. Okay, so there we good. go. Yep. So that's that's our key takeaway. From yeah. <laughs> Agnes is a normal human. Exactly. I'm not a lizard. Um, great. Where that's, have you been? I have been in California. I've been all around California. I started in San Francisco, where we went for a conference. Um, which conference? Was International that? Studies Association, which is the biggest conference bringing together foreign policy and international relations academics for all over the world, about 5,000 of them. And over a week, they, they I think there were over a 1,000 different events. Um, oh, my God. That's in, so many yeah, people. It's incredibly huge, just overwhelming event. But we went and it was a great opportunity to meet sort of past authors and find new authors and generally raise our profile in the States particularly. And yes. you guys ran a marathon. We, we did a half. Yeah, I mean, still. A half. Yes. What, uh, so how did this from, come about? Hang on. Did So the editor, Andrew Dorman, who has been on this podcast before and is a lovely man. Hello, Andrew. Indeed. Hi, Andrew. Said to you guys, let's do a marathon. He did. Yeah, that's basically, I mean. And you all said yes. Yes, we would never have done this through choice. <laughs> but you can't say no to Andrew Dorman. <laughs> no, I'm so impressed. I think if, if it had been suggested that the world today did a marathon, I think I would have told well, I Alan think that's the next to challenge. stick it. I think that's the next challenge, yeah. And actually, to be fair, it was absolutely amazing. Brilliant views of San Francisco running across the Golden Gate Bridge at sunrise. It was it was nice. It was a really good way to end the week. Amazing. Yeah, that was good. Absolutely um, Can people still sponsor you? People can still sponsor us, yes. Uh, We have a Just Giving page. We were raising money for something that I'm about to pronounce wrong, which was the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative. That is difficult. Yeah, so I have no idea if that's what we were raising money for, (laughs) but I think we were. Uh, They're based at Imperial College London, and uh, they do really important work fighting a tropical disease, which is a a parasite, a snail-like parasite, which um, affects millions literally millions of people every year and uh, the treatment is 
incredibly cheap. Okay. Um, so any donation, even if you donate two pounds, it it's enough to sort of help reduce this this treatment. Amazing. And, uh, well, we'll link the Just Giving page below, nice, so that yeah. anybody who fancies it can sponsor. Yes, please do, and and thanks everyone in advance. But yes, it's uh, time for a new podcast. And it is. I caught up with two of our two of our past authors. Brilliant. And we recorded some really fascinating interviews actually and we're going to be sharing those over this episode of the podcast and the next episode. But we're also going to be hearing from Chatham House colleagues as per usual. So Agnes, who are we speaking to this week? So this week we're speaking to Tom Rains, who is the program manager and research fellow of the Europe program and Professor Matthew Goodwin, who is an associate fellow with the Europe Programme, but also a professor at Kent. Um, <laughs> going to say Kings, not Kings. Um, one of those. One of, those, one of the Ks. Yeah, one of the yeah. Ks. Sorry, <laughs> Matt. Who jointly produced this amazing project looking at different tribes of Europe and sort of identified six of them, um, which... Political came, tribes. Political tribes, yeah, sorry. Not, not literal. Not literal tribes. tribes. Um, different types of Europeans and how people identify personally within the European system. And they did it in an amazing sort of unique 10 country public survey, which um, they conduct in sort of late 2016, early 2017 and produce some really fascinating results. And who did you speak to, Ben? So for this episode, I spoke to Rebecca Sanders, who is uh, an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati. And she has written an article in our March issue about the international women's rights agenda at the United Nations and attempts, recent attempts by more conservative-leaning countries to spoil this agenda, essentially, to spoil this drive for, for women's equality, which is a cornerstone of everything the UN stands for. And, yeah, it's uh, it's quite worrying, but she has some solutions, so okay. it's, uh, it's so not, not all too, bad. Not yeah. too bad. <laughs> but first, let's start off with Tribes of Europe. Uh, let's have a listen. So I'm here with Tom Rains, who is research fellow and program manager at the Europe program at Chatham House, and also probably one of the best people at Chatham House to have on a pop quiz team. Just saying. No response from Tom there. And endorse myself at that point, <laughs> like, yes, but I do strongly. Yeah. And Professor Matthew Goodwin, who is a visiting senior fellow here, but also professor of politics at the University of Kent. And famous for eating his own book on Sky News. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> we do need to stop mentioning that. <laughs> we know why you did it, though, Matt. And we're here to discuss a project that came out in December last year on the tribes of Europe. So what are the tribes of Europe? So the, the origins of, of this work really came in some polling that we'd done across 10 different European countries, uh, we asked 10,000 Europeans how they felt about the EU, how they felt about politics, how they felt about the future, about their identities. And what we really wanted to do was was kind of move beyond kind of narrow binary ideas about being pro or anti-EU, which is very easy in a British context to be remain or leave, but uh, crops up in discussions about the, the EU elsewhere. And we wanted to try and see if we could use our data to understand 
and develop uh, a more nuanced political spectrum across Europe for how people think and feel about the European Union. And which 10 countries did you did you choose? In no particular order, we did the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Poland, Greece, Hungary, Austria and Belgium. So the idea basically with that was to get a good mix. We had large and small countries that we covered countries inside and outside of the Eurozone when we started the project and the EU potentially when we finish it with the UK deciding to leave, but also that we had a balance, a geographic balance between uh, north, south, east and west. It's not a, it's not a perfect mix. You don't, we didn't have every country in the, in the EU, but we covered more than 80% of the population of the EU in, in that sample. And how long was the process of sampling? So the field work was, uh, was not too long. That took us sort of three or four weeks uh, or so to do. Uh, what took longer was to build the statistical model that, that gave us the tribes. Uh, and basically our, uh, our approach to that, we worked with a, a colleague, David Cutts, a political scientist at the University of Birmingham and also a, an associate fellow of the Europe programme, um, to develop a model which identified these different tribes based on what we saw as some key questions uh, within the survey. So the survey asked kind of 30 or 40 different questions and we we isolated eight which we thought were kind of crucial questions and signifiers for where people would fall on this spectrum so that covered issues how people felt about the future of European integration how they felt about kind of issues of economic redistribution how people felt about immigration the refugee crisis so touching a lot of kind of contemporary political concerns but also longer term issues about where people uh, would like the EU to go, how they feel about the proper balance between member states and the, and the supranational level. And I suppose it would be useful at this point to identify the six tribes that you came up with. Yes, so we identified six different tribes and I can uh, give you them in order of size. So just to introduce them briefly, hesitant Europeans, the largest group Probably best summarised as being quite apathetic about lots of aspects of, of politics in general, so not necessarily the most politically engaged. But on certain issues, they tend to feel quite cautious about the direction of the EU, particularly on two issues, about sovereignty and about immigration. Uh, the contented Europeans, uh, 23% of the uh, sample, they tend to be younger, they tend to feel very positive about the status quo, they're one of the most positive groups about immigration. Um, and they're, they're spread pretty evenly across the EU, but particularly common actually in some of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe where we, where we poll Poland and Hungary. The third largest were the EU rejectors, uh, which is 14% of the sample. It's quite an easy one intuitively to understand, but this is the group of voters who've been mobilising we've seen in elections across Europe. We've seen them as uh, in UKIP supporters in in the UK and, and Le Pen voters in France and elsewhere, but basically people who feel fundamentally that the, the EU is a bad thing, they think it has too much power, they're very negative about immigration, they feel unhappy and angry about politics and often also about the state of their own uh, group in society. And the fourth, we have the frustrated pro-Europeans. So these people tend to be not terribly happy with the status quo, but actually they, they think the solutions to that can be found in deeper European integration rather than in uh, things sort of pulling apart in the way that the mm -hmm. EU rejectors would support. Fifth and the fifth smallest group are called the austerity rebels. So this is particularly common, as you might expect, in countries which have uh, experienced significant economic hardship in recent years, so in Greece, in Italy and in Spain. 
Um, and these people tend to have very negative views, actually similar to the rejectors, very negative views about the political establishment, if I can put it that way. But on certain issues, they tend to be quite different from the rejectors. They tend to be very strongly in favour of ideas about solidarity within the European Union, both as that applies to uh, financial redistribution, but also to approaches to the refugee crisis. And then the smallest group, six smallest, this is just uh, 7% of the EU's sample we had, were the Federalists. This group is the smallest, on average the wealthiest, on average the most male and the most highly educated group. And in some ways you could argue that they have been disproportionately driving uh, some aspects of European politics in recent years, despite being relatively underrepresented amongst the general public. Fascinating. And it's so interesting. You know, you have breakdowns by income and gender and it's able to identify all of those. Were there any sort of surprises in that field? I was surprised particularly at the uh, the gender split. So mm. uh, lots of the groups tend to have a, a slight leaning one way or, or the other. So the, the hesitant Europeans group, that largest group of people kind of in the middle, uncertain about some of these questions about the future, though that group tends to be slightly more female than male. Mm-hmm. And our EU rejectors group tends to be slightly more ma- male than female, which also fits with sort of general patterns we see uh, in votes for for radical right parties in Europe, but this difference amongst the federalists is very striking. It's, it's almost, uh, I think, the chances of somebody in that group being male is is sort of close to two thirds. Uh, so it's by some distance the most imbalanced of of all of the groups. And was there a clear country sort of distribution for the federalists? Yeah, I mean, there there are there are some countries where where federalists are unusually common. Italy and Spain and actually Mediterranean countries come out very mm-hmm. highly on that. So despite the, uh, you know, the, the negativity uh, towards the EU in large sections of the population in, in those countries, there is also a kind of attachment to a kind of original concept of the European ideal of a deeply uh, integrated federalising Europe, which, which still holds some appeal. Quite a personal question now. Which were you? So I was a I was a contented European. I was actually where I expected that I would be, yeah. which is you know that I think the EU is a good thing, but I don't necessarily think that the the future is in a completely uh, federalised Europe. Obviously, there's much more within that, and and you can actually find out which tribe you would like to be by going to a, a website that we built, which is tribes.chathamhouse.org, uh, which has an interactive online version of this research where where you can answer some of the questions and see which one you're closest to. What about you, Matt? I was a hesitant European. Were you? So I was less convinced, Mm -hmm. but open to being convinced. Right, Okay. And obviously since this came out, some stuff's happened in Europe, hasn't it? Has, you know, Italy and Hungary, has that reflected your research? Has it been an extension of that? Has it been a surprise? I think it has. I think if you look at the development of the debate, not only in Italy and Hungary, but also around Brexit, where you've seen the tribes that we identified in the report really coming through in those political debates, you know, the left in Italy offering a very different vision of where it wants to take the country from Lager or in turn from Five Star. And I think, you know, you could map those constellations quite well onto the tribes. At the same time, you know, if you look at sort of further east and you look at the Visegrad states, you can see quite a, a strong presence of what I would consider to be the EU 
perhaps not necessarily the EU rejectors, but certainly hesitant Europeans. You know, on the one hand, they're happy with what they're getting from Europe in terms of the structural funds and the fiscal investment. But on, a, on the other hand, they are deeply anxious and outright opposed to the cultural dimension of Europe, uh, what that means in terms of Hungarian national identity or Polish ways of life and, and so on. And I think then when you look at the, the evolution of the Brexit debate, what's been interesting for me at least is we've not actually polarised to two extremes, but actually, you know, the Remain side has really fragmented into two kind of different camps. One I I would classify as being quite close to the Federalist tribe that we, that we identify smaller, wants to overturn Brexit, says, look, this doesn't represent me or the country that I believe in. But another section within that Remain camp I would put more in a kind of uh, more central, hesitant position, perhaps even a contented European position, that is not 100% sold on on overturning the idea of Brexit. It would like to be in the EU if that was possible, but accepts that perhaps overturning the referendum decision might not be the best thing for the country. Um, so those, all of those events, I think, have mapped onto the central point here in this research, which is that we have to get away from the binary debate about more or less open or closed. And, and even if you look at the big debate in the West about populism, it's another binary debate. Is it economics? Is it culture? And of course, you know, the, 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 the tapestry is a lot richer than those debates would have us believe. And I think what's really interesting as well about these different tribes is that they bleed into each other quite closely. And it might just be on one single issue that moves somebody between being a hesitant European to being contented. And so if politicians or leaders can think about these separate issues, you can move people between tribes, can't you? I mean, people will move. Yeah, I think it's important to, to you know to say that this is this is a snapshot of mm. where of where Europe is at the moment, and you know all of these tribes that we've described are obviously sort of perfect archetypes of each of those tribes, and lots of people will be slightly similar to one in some ways, but closer to another one over overall. But absolutely, I mean, one of the conclusions that 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 we came to was basically that you know the hesitant Europeans are the are the key swing group for the future. They're the the group who who could you know, move towards perhaps more of a kind of what we call the EU rejectors, you know, push more in a, in a Eurosceptic direction, but also, you know, uh, could also go in the other in the other way too. Um, so we think that, that really that that's the, the, the key group for the future. And there's a, you know, there's a contest really for, for that group in the middle. And do you think politicians are aware of that and are sort of focused on that group? Well, not based on what we've seen since doing this research, which has been a doubling down on the sort of more federalist vision, more discussion of further integration, further further linkages. Uh, I don't know, Tom, have you seen anything that is perhaps evidence of the EU challenging its its thinking on this? I mean, I think, you know, there's quite an active... This is one thing that we talked about in the, in the previous report that we did, which looked at compared to the public and elite attitudes to European integration. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's plenty of ideas out there. And, and I think in a way, Britain choosing to leave the EU and, and I think for the most part from the EU's perspective Brexit's sort of been contained to some degree mm. and that you know looking at it positively creates the space for a for a debate about the future of the EU and Macron has been very prominent in that and has a, a particular vision of the direction that the EU and the Eurozone in particular should go you know ideas of having a you know a Eurozone finance ministry, maybe a, a parliament for the Eurozone. Juncker has lots of ideas about the changing direction that the Commission should take, moving perhaps from being a kind of neutral 
arbiter and interpreter of and and kind of proposer of regulation within the EU to a more explicitly political role uh, suggested merging that with the role of the president of the council create a kind of powerful president of Europe so there are you know there's an active discussion is that a discussion which really taps into most people's day-to-day concerns probably it doesn't but you know I don't think that's a unique problem for the for the EU that there's a disconnect between a kind of constitutional discussion if you can call it that and uh and kind of a public debate. Um, but I think in a way that key challenge is how do you reach people who are concerned and anxious about some things but have a, uh, many are also apathetic or disinterested, you know, they spend their time like we do in think tanks thinking about <laughs> thinking about these issues to the same degree. <laughs> but equally potentially don't feel like the things that they are concerned about are being addressed by the EU. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think we're we're heading into an issue agenda that's going to be very difficult for the EU around issues that are uh, transcending the nation state and transcending also challenging what the EU is capable of doing, the refugee crisis Mm -hmm. being the obvious one where you are seeing an issue bleed into concerns over domestic security, concerns over borders and concerns over whether the EU is even capable of responding to that and what does a successful response strategy even look like to that, you know, will European taxpayers be happy to send hundreds of millions of euros to prop up African economies, will Eastern Central European states get on board with a quota system? Clearly not so far. And these are all issues that I think over the longer term may end up nudging people from one tribe into another mm-hmm. because it's clear from most of the economic forecasts at least, I mean, if you if you buy them, somebody once said they're a bit like sausages, once, once you've seen how they're, they're made, you never want to go near them. Um, but economic forecasts would suggest that you know, over the long, long term, Europe is never going to get into those high rates of growth that you're seeing in other areas of the world. And that in, that will further underline the salience of these identity issues. I think that's really interesting. And I mean, Tom, you mentioned earlier, let me get this right, contented Europeans quite heavily represented in sort of Eastern Europe. Yeah, I mean, in, in, and, it's sort of interesting because there's there's actually quite a lot of data that shows that many people in Central and Eastern Europe, in, in countries which join the EU from sort of 2004 onwards have quite positive attitudes towards the EU and they can see the the way that it has uh, you know transformed the economies of uh, you know former communist states in eastern europe and that you know they've become part of the the european project at the same time they have governments which are often eurosceptic or hostile to the EU or in the view of the european commission and many observers are taking steps which undermine fundamental democratic norms mm. which on which the the EU is is based I mean, so i think there is a bit of a kind of contradiction there between the two but um, those are those are governments that those people voted in you know i mean hungary is an interesting one of course yeah but i would i would you know uh, i'm not a, a an expert on Hungarian politics, but I would estimate that most people who were voting in Hungary weren't voting on the basis of what Orban was mm. was saying to his his Euroscepticism, but more about domestic politics and the performance of the economy and and other other issues. Uh, although I know uh, he has he has made much of sort of taking a stand in defence of his idea of what European civilization is. So perhaps Hungary's quite a, a special case in that sense. But certainly there are there are there is a uh, you know large numbers of young people in Central and Eastern Europe who are very positive and feel European and feel well disposed to the EU. And just talking of age, the sort of breakdown, if you can be really sort of broad, is it is it is it does it tend to be that 
young people are positive about the EU and older people aren't or not? I think one of the key things we always have to remember when having this specific debate is is the role of education. Mm. So if you look at degree holders across Europe, they tend to be pro-European at ease with immigration or certainly they don't see it as an issue and generally relaxed about social liberalism. Now, if you take away that experience of college education and maybe you also look at uh, folks who are coming from outside of the big cities, then you begin to see why Marine Le Pen's strongest support uh, came from the under-40s. Viktor Orban in Hungary draws his support across the generations. Salvini in Italy did very well among young Italians. So at very broad level, yeah, the young and the millennials and the new iGen generation I've I've been reading about recently um, are very at (laughs) ease with these issues, right? Mm. Uh, Millennials are old hat now. Um, But that is really uh, shaped um, by their educational experience. And of course, if you take the big, big macro view, they're actually across much of the West, take Italy as an example, only 20 to 25% of young Italians have a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even in the US, it's about 40, 45%. So sometimes we get carried away and we think, yes, you know, the, the liberal millennial future the is surge. five years away, um, but this is going to be uh, a trend that will certainly run through run through uh, our lives, and I, I include all of us in the same generation there. <laughs> yeah, of course, Matt. Yes. Um, so do you guys have plans to revisit this in a year or so? I mean, what obviously it's still relevant and a fascinating piece of research and something that we should all keep looking at. But yeah, do you have plans to sort of relook at it in another couple of years? How, how do you think it might have changed? It'd be fascinating to, to go back to and sort of run the same questions in the same countries that we did um, in a couple of years' time. One, one interesting development in, in that front, I mean, obviously what we were looking at here was specifically at tribes of Europeans that cross national boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of one aspect of the word that's slightly distinctive and what we have in May 2019 will be the European elections so where explicitly there are you know European pan-European parties campaigning to 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 sit in a European parliament now many of those campaigns will be run you know explicitly on on national terms and and by national parties but I think it'll be very interesting to see how some of this analysis is sort of played out uh, on on the European stage uh, in the parliamentary elections Parliamentary elections have tended to be pretty good hunting grounds for uh, for more radical parties, both on on the left and the right. And it'll be interesting to see whether we have you know a large presence for some some parties that have made a breakthrough, like the AfD in Germany, or what happens to uh, Macron's En Marche party, which isn't currently represented in the European mm-hmm. Parliament in the same way because it didn't exist in the 2014 general elections. And uh, so there's you know there could be uh, some interesting disruption if you want to use that term on both the liberal pro-european perspective but also on the on the eurosceptic side thanks both of you so much um you should you you should uh read the report and also take the test at tribes.chathamhouse.org Okay, so now I'm joined by Rebecca Sanders, who is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. And we're in San Francisco for the International Studies Association Conference. And we're going to be discussing today her recent article in International Affairs in the March issue titled Norm Spoiling, Undermining the International Women's Rights Agenda. 
Rebecca, thanks so much for taking some time out and speaking to us. My pleasure. So I thought it would be helpful for our listeners just to start by outlining some of the context around the international women's rights agenda historically. So how, where, did, where are its roots? Where did it come from? And how does it function? Absolutely. So the international women's rights agenda, as I conceptualize it, is something that's been developing at the United Nations for several decades. Uh, it includes the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which was a major 1979 multilateral treaty that addresses issues of women's rights. And that emerged really at the behest of feminist activists and women's rights activists who were pressing for greater equality for women around the world. And since CEDAW was first uh, enacted, we've seen a number of other initiatives at the UN, prominently, for example, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, which came out of the 1995 World Conference on Women, uh, as well as a number of other declarations and policies that have come out of the UN. And these are reinforced and rearticulated every year at something called Commission on the Status of Women, which is a yearly meeting of thousands of diplomats and activists uh, in New York to try to discuss and advance women's rights. So it's a complex and developing landscape that has really uh, emerged at the sort of urging and behest of women's rights activists around the world. Fascinating. And sorry if this is a really basic question, mm-hmm. but as you see it, what mm-hmm. is the vision for success? Is right. it is it I mean is it just simply equality for, for yes. people regardless of gender or are there specific goals that they're working towards or I, I would identify probably three primary goals Mm -hmm. of the international women's rights agenda, which is the full economic, social, and political equality of women in society, women's bodily autonomy and control over their reproduction and sexuality, Mm -hmm. and the distinction or respecting the distinction between biological sex roles and socially constructed gender roles. So recognizing that many attributes associated with women and men are not natural, but produced in in socially constructed contexts. And how have the discussions at the UN sort of translated into sort of tangible policy? The way that these international standards are articulated in practice is through influencing member states to change their domestic and local policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why the international women's rights agenda is important, because it attempts to set standards of appropriate behavior for states around the world and have them uh, follow through at the local level in terms of realizing some of these goals. Now, it's interesting to note that Conventions like CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, has almost universal ratification at the UN. There's 189 states that have Mm. signed on to this convention. It's one of the most highly uh, ratified conventions out there. However, we see obviously in practice that many of those member states are not living up to the principles uh, of that treaty. We see that in patterns of extensive and ongoing discrimination uh, against women, right, Mm. in in social, economic, and political spheres, very high levels of sexual and physical violence against women, poor health outcomes, you know, poor literacy rates, the feminization of poverty. Um, And that's why this agenda remains important, right, because there's a lot of work left to be done all around the world on on these issues. Of course, yeah. Now... The kind of premise of your article 
as I understood it, was that this women's rights agenda is being undermined in some way. So what are the challenges? Who's, who's bringing this under threat into contention? Right. So in the article, I identify a phenomenon that I call norm spoiling. And this stands in contrast to how we usually think about the promotion of uh, norms or principles in international politics, which we've generally associated with the sort of advancement or development of human rights norms at places like the UN. Mm. But what I identify in this article are efforts by a coalition of state and non-state actors to challenge these norms at the UN, to weaken their influence and to limit their development and diffusion. Mm. And this backlash against the international women's rights agenda is not simply a matter of sort of local people uh, around the world not liking, you know, the sort of foreign imposed international agenda. It's actually, uh, as I see it, a, a very modern strategic and transnational effort on behalf of some very uh, savvy states and NGOs to limit the development and diffusion of these international women's rights. And what's in it for them? What's the motivation for doing this? Um, it's largely ideological. Okay, they are sure. um, substantively opposed to a variety of aspects of the international women's rights agenda, um, including substantive equality between men and women. Uh, they're very much opposed to uh, women's reproductive freedom, and they're opposed to distinguishing between biological sex and socially constructed gender roles. Okay, right. So could you give us some examples of how specifically these these efforts to, to spoil these norms kind of play out within a United Nations setting. Yeah, absolutely. So this spoiling coalition, which is made up of a variety of heterogeneous actors, including notably the Holy See, which is the Vatican's representative at the UN, the United States under Republican administrations, Russia, and a variety of states that associate themselves with uh, Islamic or Christian identities, as well as a number of NGOs, many of them right-wing evangelical American NGOs, but also NGOs from around the world. Many of these groups have started to engage in tactics and strategies that we associate with human rights promotion. So uh, it might be a matter of training activists to promote their agenda, lobbying uh, UN delegates and diplomats and politicians around the world, and strategically framing a variety of social issues in ways that shift policy. And then in the paper, I identify some sort of specific elements of the strategy of norm spoiling. One is that this coalition is trying to reinterpret existing norms at the UN. So for instance, if you look at UN human rights treaties, they talk about things like the right to life, right? As well as use the language of protecting the quote unquote natural family. So um, many of these organizations have tried to uh, advance their interpretations of those existing principles to limit certain elements of the international women's rights agenda. They've also been very focused on trying to control and change language in UN outcome documents, treaties, and other declarations in order to uh, limit what they see as problematic terms in those documents. So to give you some examples, this spoiling coalition is opposed to concepts like gender, right? The word gender, they don't like that. <laughs> Reproductive rights and health right. is a target. The concept of comprehensive sexuality education 
is uh, another target for elimination from documents. The concept of unmet need for contraception, concepts of safe and unsafe abortion, uh, and even references to things like intimate partner violence have all come under attack from this coalition of states and NGOs who see this language as helping to reinforce elements of the international women's rights agenda that they deem problematic. And then finally, I talk about in the article how this coalition has deployed cultural relativism and anti-colonial discourses as well as the language of traditional values to try to undermine the international women's rights agenda, suggesting that this agenda is somehow foreign or imperialistic. And it's not that these concerns are illegitimate. In fact, many women from the global south have long expressed concerns about the inclusiveness and universality of the international women's rights agenda. But in this case, these concepts and discourses are being deployed to undermine women's rights. And ironically, they're being deployed in many cases by Western and American far-right Christian evangelicals who we would not generally associate with the interests of women in the, in the global south. So there's, there's some strange politics going on, uh, going on there. Mm, I guess means to an end, right? That's right, um, yeah. So one thing that, I mean, this, the scale of this is... In, quite shocking but one of the things that I wondered uh, I wanted to ask was obviously you're framing this as a as a spoiling coalition Mm -hmm. but to what extent is this kind of organized action Mm -hmm. are these states cooperating on this or is it actually just that it happens that certain administrations with certain political views have kind of coincided Mm -hmm. and therefore the effect is of a coalition that's a great question and I believe that it is a an increasingly organized conscious and strategic transnational coalition that is advancing this agenda. Now, it's a coalition that's organized around shared antipathies, not necessarily a common vision of politics, which is why countries that are adversaries in other contexts, Mm -hmm. such as, you know, the United States, Russia, the Vatican, Iran, Egypt, can come together on these issues organized around their, their shared opposition. But we see evidence of coordination in the strategies that delegates and diplomats and NGO representatives are using. A couple of years ago, something called the Group of the Friends of the Family was formed at the United Nations, a coalition of 25 states, to contest the international women's rights agenda, as well as uh, the emergence of what are called SOGI rights, sexual orientation and gender identity rights uh, at the UN. And in terms of NGO activity, we see organizations like the World Congress of Families, uh, which is a major transnational conglomeration of NGOs that are opposed to uh, women's and SOGI rights, increasingly organizing and coordinating transnationally. So I do believe it's an organized transnational effort. In light of this of this kind of challenge, have there been kind of emergent responses from the advocates of the international women's rights agenda? Has, has there been an attempts to resist, if that makes sense? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think women's rights advocates are becoming increasingly aware of this phenomenon. It's not, they're beginning to to notice it and label it and organize against it because they are concerned, right, that this ongoing advocacy is going to block and limit the diffusion of the international women's rights agenda. So for instance, there's a lot of concern 
that there have been very uh, weak and watered down outcome documents coming out of things like the Commission on the Status of Women, the yearly meeting that tries to advance women's rights because of this ongoing opposition. And so we do see uh, women's rights advocates fighting to maintain language in UN documents, continuing to you know, lobby and advocate around uh, the issues that they think are important. But we've seen a lot of concern that perhaps venues like the UN are becoming less useful for advancing women's rights as some of these organizations and, and coalitions have, have more impact. Okay, just to follow up on that, so what other avenues are there, do you think, outside the United Nations? Is the United Nations still the most effective way of pursuing this agenda? Or do you think we need to start thinking of alternative forums? The United Nations is an indispensable part of the puzzle because that is where global standards are laid out. And even if states fail to comply with those standards, activists on the ground can leverage those principles in their local context in order to fight for change. They can say to their governments, look, you signed on to these treaties, you agreed to these principles, you're not respecting them in practice, and use that in order to advance women's rights in their own context. So withdrawal from the UN space Ceding it to this coalition of spoilers is, is certainly not an option and not something that I think women's rights advocates are, are contemplating. At the same time, it's important to realize that this is not uh, a panacea. This is not uh, something that can actually, on its own, solve all of these problems. I'd just like to kind of bring us towards the close, actually. And I just wondered, it may seem a bit basic, but are you optimistic or pessimistic about the sort of prospects for the international women's rights agenda because I mean it's some quite powerful states involved Mm -hmm. in this spoiling coalition Mm -hmm. but do you think that actually as administrations change will this diminish is it a kind of cyclical thing or do you think we're seeing a more worrying trend I think we are currently in a period in global politics where we've seen backlash and pushback against many different aspects of international human rights we're Mm. in an era of ascendant nationalism, which is also associated with the promotion of patriarchy and misogyny. We're in an era of populist backlash against international law and institutions, and in a period of ascendant forms of uh, religious conservatism uh, and fundamentalism. So I think in that broader context, there is reason for a serious concern and pessimism. At the same time, women's rights advocates and human rights advocates are, are fighting back. They're, they're organized and they give us reason for, for hope. But we uh, must not rest on our laurels and assume that because we have all of these international treaties and instruments that somehow we, we've achieved our goals because we haven't. Rebecca Sanders, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. If you liked what you listened to, you can read more in the links provided below. If you're feeling generous, do leave us a review on iTunes as it helps other people find us too. And follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimpston. And you've been listening to Undercurrents.